Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Again, give your ear to God's word. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, for you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we pray that as we consider it today, that you would set our minds on heavenly things, that you would set our minds on your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, you would make us conformed to his image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, as we consider the end of chapter 3. And as you are turning there, I want you to consider, to answer this question in your mind, maybe not out loud, but what are the marks of a good pastor? What makes for good pastoral ministry, in other words? Is it having a large social media following, or having advanced degrees? Is it being an eloquent speaker or publishing a number of books? These are all not bad things in and of themselves. But I ask the question because as we consider the end of Philippians 3 today, Paul puts forward for the Philippians and for us some very important, even critical gospel truths, but as you watch him talk to the Philippians, you cannot help but notice also the pastoral excellence with which he does it. You remember that the Philippians and Paul had a, a particular relationship, a very warm relationship. They had sent Epaphroditus to Paul when he was in prison in Rome to bring a gift and to let him know that they were praying for him and they supported him in his ministry even when he was in prison. And as we've worked our way through the epistle, we've seen in chapter 3 that Paul is, is warning them to watch out for the heresy of the Judaizers. And he put himself forward as an example of someone who had renounced his, um, his self-exaltation, someone who had renounced his personal glory as he followed Christ. And as he comes to the cap of his argument, he gives the Philippians wonderful truths, but he also does it with a wonderful heart of a pastor. 
And so we'll see right at the very beginning in verse 17 that one mark of good pastoral ministry is that the pastor lives a life worthy of imitation. You can see that there in verse 17. Read that with me. He says, Brethren, join in following my example. And actually that entire phrase, join in following my example, is a single Greek word from which we get English words like mime or mimetic or imitate. Other English versions have that phrase helpfully translated. Brethren, join in imitating me. He's encouraging the Philippians to do exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, whenever it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Very similar Greek word. Do you see the similarity there? Consider and imitate. Exactly what Paul says to do in verse 17. Join in following or imitate and consider or note those who so walk. We learn how to be wise. We learn how to walk the Christian life. First by watching others exhibit it and then by trying to replicate what we have seen. That's imitation. It's considering a pattern and then trying to replicate it. Paul knows that that we learn pretty much everything that we do by imitation. If you still have little kids in the house, you know that they learn everything they do by imitation, whether that's speaking or even walking. Right? That's you'll you'll notice a kid when he starts to get ready to learn how to walk, that he is watching everyone else in the house get around on two feet and considering going to himself, that seems like a really great way to get around. And then what does he do? He attempts it. He considers and then he imitates. And usually he goes like this. <laughs> he falls flat on his face. And you need you need to evaluate how things are going. This is how imitation works. We consider, we see the type, we see the pattern, we attempt to do it ourselves and evaluate how it's going. And then the process goes all over again. That's how we learn even how to walk. And that's, the, that's the, the verb that Paul uses, the idiom that Paul uses there for the Christian life. Note those, he says, who so walk. It's the, it's the way that we learn to live the Christian life even. But it's the way that we learn to do anything. If you've played sports or played games or if you've tried to write or tried to work at some craft, Um, like woodworking or baking, whatever it is, you put the pattern in front of yourself and you see if you can do it and then you evaluate. We learn by imitation. The Christian life is like a craft that we learn in apprenticeship with our leaders and those who also walk like our leaders. But we need to make sure that we are imitating. So there's, there's a slight difference between imitating which involves that considering, looking at the pattern, trying to do it, and the simple um, aping or plagiarizing. Okay, Paul's not asking us to plagiarize someone's life. Just look at the surface examples. So, for example, um, when I was in college, 
I used to wear sandals constantly, even in the wintertime. And I had a friend who asked me once, he was like, Bobby, why do you wear sandals in January? And I said, well, I want to be like Jesus. Jesus wore sandals, and so I'm wearing sandals. That's not, that's not the kind of invitation that Paul has for us. We don't look at the surface and just say, um, you know, what, what homeschool curriculum is this person using? Or how do they um, sit at the dinner table? Or what car do they drive? These aren't the things he's asking us to imitate. Look at what Paul is asking us to imitate. The pattern that he wants us to exemplify is found in verses 4 through 6 of this exact same chapter where we saw last time that Paul's burning ambition was to know Christ fully in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, and together with his determination to press on so as to finish the race and win the prize to be conformed to the image of Christ. When Paul asks us to imitate himself, to imitate those that also walk the way that he did, he's wanting us to do things like consider his self-denying and self-giving acts for the church. The way that he lost everything with joy for the sake of Christ. For the way that he did not seek his own goodness and righteousness before the Father, but he trusted in Christ's perfect atoning work. He wants us to see that his admission that perfection is not yet his, but that he eagerly pursues being conformed to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Imitate me, Paul tells the Corinthians, as I imitate Christ. This call to following, this call to imitation is nothing other than the call to discipleship that Jesus gives every follower. You see Jesus in the gospel calling the disciples, calling to the crowds. What does he ask them to do? He sees them and he says, come, follow me. Come, imitate me. Come, be with me. This is what we are to do. And we're, we are blessed to have pastor and leaders that we can look to and imitate. But it's not just our leaders. We also have good, godly, and mature members in our congregation, just as Paul says. We have the pictures of Jesus written for us in the scriptures. We have biographies of missionaries and wonderful Christian workers. Paul knows that we need this corporate witness in order to image and imitate Christ. Paul holds himself up as an example, but we also know in the letter he's also given Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of those who have denied themselves in order to serve the church. And he also assumes that there are good and godly mature Christian leaders there in Philippi. Note those who so walk, he says. We need to do these two things. We need to look in the scriptures and meditate on Christ, try to imitate Christ. And we need to note those in and around and among us who are also doing that. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And as we talk so much this year about the importance of discipleship, it shows us the importance of spending time with one another. Because although we have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit and we can look at Paul's life, we can look at the disciples' lives, 
It's that spending time with one another. Not looking at the surface, but looking deeply, contemplating. What is it about this person's faith and life that's like Christ, that I can imitate? And so I want to encourage you, as you've thought this year about who you can disciple, who you uh, can be discipled with, spend time with one another, noting, considering, and imitating those parts of each other's lives and faith that are like Jesus Christ. This is the great concern that Paul had for them. And you can see why he asks the Philippians to imitate him and other leaders in the church because there are many other leaders out there who go off in a very different direction and who would gladly take the Philippians along with them. Look at verse 18. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So we see the second mark of the pastor. Not only does he live a life that's worthy of imitation, but he warns about spiritual danger. He warns his people about spiritual danger. In reading for the sermon this week, I was struck by just how often Paul spends time warning people. We saw that even when we started this chapter, as he writes to the Philippians, he says that I'm writing the same things to you. I've already written to you about these people. I've already warned you about these people when I'm here, but I'm writing the same things to you. And then our text here we have again, he says, of whom I have told you often. To the Colossians, he wrote, See that no one cheats you of your reward, delighting in false humility and the worship of angels. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He tells Timothy, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. A good pastor warns his people constantly of spiritual danger. It is a good and gracious thing for your pastors and elders or other Christians to point out spiritual danger to you. As Paul says in the text here, many walk in a contrary way. And we, being creatures of imitation, just like our children, are prone to looking at the wrong examples. Paul summarized his ministry in Ephesus. That was, Ephesus was the longest ministry stop that Paul had. He was around there a year and a half or two years. Most places, he planted churches. He was there for a few weeks, a few months, and he moved on, moved on. Ephesus was when he was um, at the longest place serving as a pastor. This was how he summarized his own ministry to the Ephesians. As he called together the elders, he said, Therefore watch and remember, for that three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. That's what he says here in our text too, that he warned the Philippians even weeping. That word is, is more than crying, it's a sobbing. Paul warned them sobbing. 
And that is an astounding thing when you consider everything that we've read in the letter up to this point that doesn't cause Paul to weep. Think about all the things that we've talked about as we've walked through Philippians. Paul is imprisoned. We've talked about him being beaten. Even as he writes to the Colossians, he tells them from this same imprisonment, he tells them, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. What would cause Paul to weep? We know that his contagious, his indomitable joy caused many of the guards and even those in Caesar's household to consider the claims of the gospel. You can imagine how astounded a guard would be if he came to to Paul's room or to Paul's cell and find that man sobbing. Paul was the kind of guy that they would stretch out on the rack and be like, Paul, this whole preaching thing is getting out of hand. We have too many people becoming converts. And Paul's going, oh, good, I'm suffering for the sake of the church. I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine what it would be like for a guard to come in and see Paul weeping? What caused Paul to weep? They are enemies, he says, of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is everything to Paul. Paul would explain, I love the cross of Christ. I desire to be conformed to Christ in his death. I look to the cross of Christ for all of my righteousness and for all of my pardon before the Father. I look to the cross of Christ for my pattern of this life. I look to the cross of Christ as my message to preach the riches of Christ, so that the Gentiles would come to faith and know God. Paul loved the cross of Christ, and these people walked as enemies of the cross. And a second thing that Paul loved was the church. You see that in chapter 4, verse 1, where he calls them, my beloved, my joy, my crown, my longed-for brethren. Paul loved Christ. Paul loved his cross. And Paul loved Christ's church. Anything and everything that would walk opposed to the message of Jesus, that would walk opposed, that would harm the church, this brought Paul grief. And in being that way, Paul is like the master that he served. In Mark chapter 3, it records this about Jesus. Jesus sitting in the synagogue looks at the Pharisees and he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill. But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man standing by, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Hardness of heart over sin. Harming the church. Opposing the message of the cross. These are the things that grieved Christ. These are the things that grieved Paul. Are they the things that grieve you? If the guards were to walk into your room, into your cell, and see you weeping, what would you be weeping over? As we look to imitate, we look to Paul's example, we look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, about our values, about what we love, 
the things that should grieve us are these things, hardness of heart over sin, opposition to the message of the cross, a, a damaging of the church, of Christ's own body. These are the things that should grieve us. And so Paul, in this grief, warns the Philippians about a danger. What danger is it that he's warning them about here? Well, there's, there's actually some debate about the identity of these people. Let's read about them in 18 and 19. Many of walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. You saw they were described in 19, that their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. So commentators are divided on who, what is this group? Some have taken that to mean that the group was licentious. Their God is their belly. In other words, they serve their appetites. Whatever their desires are, they do. And their consciences are so seared that those sins that they should find shameful, they glory, they boast in. And I think we can, we can readily imagine that that's a danger that Paul would warn people about. Licentious living, living for ourselves, living in whatever our appetites tell us to do. But you'll remember that throughout the chapter so far, Paul's big concern has been the Judaizers, who were fastidious Law keepers. Well, the point is that you can, you can serve your belly and treat your appetites as God just as easily by linking your holiness about what you refuse to consume as you can by consuming whatever you want. Either way, you are still looking to yourself, to your own physical desires. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, the Spirit expressly states that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then here's how he describes them. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Who would have thought that the doctrine of demons would have been against the marriage bed. The doctrine of demons would have been against eating good food. You see that you can serve your belly by putting whatever you want into it, or you can serve your belly by trying to achieve righteousness by what you keep out of it. One reformer in commenting on this passage said, the enemies are they who in their doctrine detract from the merit of Christ's cross and the work of our redemption by the blood of Christ finished on the cross, and they who likewise, who in their life follow after carnal delicacy and flee persecution for the cross of Christ, for Christ crucified. Both these sorts of people are enemies to the cross of Christ. The problem, either way, is what Paul tells us in verse 19. They set their minds on earthly things. When the cross of Christ calls them to deny themselves, to put off some sin, to be conformed to Jesus, they won't do it. When the cross of Christ calls them to lay aside their own righteousness and to trust alone in Jesus, 
they won't do it. These are those who oppose the upward call of God in Christ, as Paul says in verse 14. The end of this way is destruction. That's the warning. That's the warning that Paul, the pastor, puts in front of the Philippians is, whichever way you set your mind here on earth, the end of that way is destruction. And it's a danger we all need to consider because we are all tempted constantly to consult our own ease before conforming ourselves to the cross. Paul said his great desire was that he would be conformed to Christ in his death, that the body of his sin would be progressively, continually put off. And we're all tempted when the call of Jesus comes to put this sin away, to not trust in this, to deny the cross of Christ. This is the danger he puts before them. But the good pastor is not only placing this spiritual danger before people's eyes. He's also placing the glory of Christ and the heavenly hope constantly before his flock. That's what Paul does in verse 20. He says this, For or but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. He tells the Philippians, like, just like he did the Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, not on the rituals of the old covenant, not on your own appetites, but on heavenly things. And in using that word citizenship, Paul is alluding to a concept the Philippians would have known and understood very well. That word can accurate, more accurately be translated a commonwealth or a state or even maybe a homeland. The idea is that there's an external empire or homeland or home city that influences a conquered city. And those who held citizenship in the homeland were to spread that homeland's um, ways of doing things, their life, their culture, their food, their dress, and so on. This made sense to the Philippines because the Philippi was at that time a Roman colony. This was the, the situation that they were in with Rome. Even though Rome was hundreds of miles away, if you were a Roman citizen in Philippi, you had all of the rights and privileges belonging to Rome. And as you settled there, you were supposed to promote Rome's culture. You were supposed to dress like a Roman, talk like a Roman, eat like a Roman. We know that even the inscriptions around town as they dig at Philippi are in Latin, not in Greek, even though Philippi is in Greece. There's a place where Roman military officers retired to. Roman culture, even though it was hundreds of miles away, permeated Philippi. So this is something that they understood. And it's something that we get as well. If you were to walk down the street and see a man wearing a cowboy hat and eating a brisket sandwich and wearing cowboy boots, and he says, Howdy, y'all. You know that he is from... Yes, he is from my motherland, Texas. 
right? Paul is alluding to this exact concept before in chapter 1 where he exhorted the Philippians to live lives worthy of their citizenship. What he means is this. The models that you place before you to imitate, to consider, will affect your culture and it shows where you truly have made your homeland in your heart. Augustine captured this concept in his book, The City of God, in a very famous quote where he says, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, and the latter, in the Lord. Where your homeland, where your heart is, will affect your personal culture. And the point is this. For those of you who know and trust and believe in Jesus Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. This is a present reality. Your homeland is where Jesus is, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And that means that every local church, every body living here on earth is a colony of heaven, just as Philippi was a colony of Rome. And therefore, we enjoy all the rights and privileges of that heavenly city, including freedom from sin and eternal life. But we are charged, just like the Romans in Philippi were, with the responsibility of bringing the world to acknowledge the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ by preaching, by baptizing, and by teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. This heavenly citizenship that we have doesn't obliterate our physical life here in the United States or mean that we're only concerned with spiritual matters any more than being Roman citizens meant that the Philippians didn't live in Greece. But it does mean that as a church, we're called to embody a foretaste of the social and cultural life that God desires for the world. Like every culture, those who have citizens, citizenship in heaven have their own culture, whether we're here in Springfield or whether we're in China or whether we're in Africa, around the world, we too have a heavenly culture. We have a particular food. Like Christ said in John 6, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Christians also have a distinctive dress. It's not cowboy hats. What Paul says to the Colossians, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Put off the old man and put on Christ. Christians have a certain way of speaking. Speak, he tells the Philippians, that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. As your mind is set on heavenly things and focused on your heavenly Lord, you will embody more and more, we will embody more and more the culture of our homeland where Jesus is. But it is not only those cultural aspects, but the, the king himself that we are waiting for. Look at that again in verse 20 and 21, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await 
the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not only to speak a certain way, to act a certain way, to dress a certain way. We're to focus our minds on Christ. We eagerly await for Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He is the Lord. He is the one who is the ruler of heaven and earth, not of an earthly empire like Caesar, but of a a heavenly empire encompassing all the spiritual realities and all the nations of men. We wait for him and we press on to Christ, meaning that all of our workings for Christ are waiting, not like we're waiting for a bus, but waiting more like a bride does for her wedding day as she continually gets ready. There's an eager anticipation, a continual working, a waiting for the moment for the wedding to happen. We wait for Christ, and Paul singles out what will happen when he comes. He says that he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. That word lowly means humble. And we are humbled in our present state in that we are subject to weakness. We are subject to hunger and thirst, ultimately death and decay. We know that in our flesh resides no good thing. We have habitual sins, besetting sins that hamper us every day of our life. And the great joy, the great hope that Paul puts before us here is when the Lord, when the emperor, when the King Jesus comes, we will be conformed to his body, his glorious body that he had when he rose from the dead after making satisfaction for our sins, never to hunger, never to thirst, and never to die. And we will also be like him and we will be free from all of our sins. That's the hope that Paul puts before them. And that's why he exhorts them to stand fast in the Lord. Look at that in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. That's the final mark of good pastoral ministry is he loves his people dearly. This is the most affectionate and endearing language Paul uses in the epistles to address any church. He says they are beloved, they're longed for, they're his joy. And there's this beautiful picture, there's this beautiful theology when he calls them his crown. You see that? He says, my joy and my crown. That's not, that's not the word for a crown like a king. That's a word for a crown that's a wreath. That's the wreath that's given to athletic winners in contests in the ancient world. The idea that Paul's putting out there is not that Paul will be rewarded when the Philippians are glorified in Christ, but that the Philippians' glorification in Christ when he returns is the great reward that Paul is looking toward. On that great day, their glorification, their conformity, their freedom from sin is the reward that Paul is looking forward to. And I hope that you know that this is, this is the reward, this is the great expectation and hope 
of your pastor, your elders, your leadership that we're striving and looking for. Paul exhorted his friends to stand firm, to not be moved from their hope in Christ. And that is also my prayer for you. May the people of Christ provide you with many examples to follow. May you take warning from the destruction of the enemies of the cross. May the wonders of your heavenly citizenship and your future hope give you great motivation in the Christian life. And may you stand firm in your pursuit of the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. And we thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who put an end to all of our sin and rose from the dead and is alive at your right hand and whose kingdom is over all of heaven and on earth. We thank you that you have made us heavenly citizens and we pray that our mind and affections and lives would all be directed towards your son and towards his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.